Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. We are one year into this isolation period. We all thought it was just going to be a month or two to kind of flatten the curve and then we'd be right back to work. But clearly that isn't exactly how it went down. We are one year into live events being officially closed. And a lot of us, myself included, really didn't want to accept that this was going to be a a major shift for our industry and that we thought that we would just take a little sidestep for a little bit, go home, spend some time with the family, refresh, and then step right back into the old normal. But it is painfully obvious and clear that that is not the case. Too many innovations have happened. Too many things have changed. Too many people. People have either left the industry or completely shifted their entire uh, business model to adapt to the new sense of normalcy that we have kind of built. And so I thought today would be a really good day to just kind of reflect on all the things that we have learned and uh, all the things that we will need to implement moving forward. So I invited a an, an industry icon to kind of reflect on this so we can kind of go over some of his unique philosophies on how he has did, his business has changed, how his models have, have transformed to meet the current needs of the industry. I hope you will all welcome Dennis Size. He is the executive VP of design at the Lighting Group and, and, a, and an all around very nice guy who has been in the industry for over 35 years and, and continues to innovate and come up with new ideas. So uh, Dennis, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Pleasure to be here. And and before we start, I just have to commend you on what an incredible thing you're doing. One of the things that helps people survive and grow and and just get through the terrible times are communication and and fellowship and camaraderie. And it's interesting. It's not that I don't uh, uh, read your column. You know, uh, I know you always say, start at the back of the book and read forward. I'd like to take the <laughs> other point of view. Start at the beginning and go to the end because Chris's column is the cherry on top of the Sunday. Uh, oh, in particular, you. you're welcome. Your, your column this month uh, on the issue I just got on, on what the new normal is, is perfect. I mean, it really gets people thinking. Going back to what I was trying to say, You have managed to get a lot of people, colleagues, friends, people that don't even know each other, but work in the industry to think and to talk and and to exchange ideas. I mean, I I never actually, I just kind of got turned on to your podcast only a couple months ago. And I think it's great. And and the variety of opinions and 
and what people are saying and how people are surviving is, is really wonderful. And that's the kind of thing that helps people get through, you know, the sense of family. You know, the, the, the name of the company that, uh, that I work with is the Lighting Design Group, but I am always calling it the Lighting Design Family. You know, a year ago, we were 55 people on staff and probably 100 freelancers we use pretty frequently. And all of a sudden, you know, for, for a company with this largest staff, including 35 lighting designers that I managed, we had no work. There was nothing. And, and people were concerned about paying bills, about this and that, all the usual things that you've talked about in all of, all of your uh, uh, chats with everybody. Fortunately, our company was able to get a, a PPP grant and except for a, a, a little brief furlough, we were able to hire everybody back. All 55 staffers came back and were paid their full salary. Uh, unfortunately, that money ran out. And then as you've, uh, as everybody's noticed, it, it uh, all came crashing down again. And, and during that period, we had to furlough more than half our staff, we had to lay off people. We had to do whatever we could to survive in an industry that had come to a complete, almost complete shutdown. Fortunately, I'll digress a little bit to bring some more good news into the picture. We just managed to get a second PPP grant and we were able to bring back all the furloughed people that we had on furlough since last July and uh, now we're not up to our 55 level, but we have close to 45 people working now back on staff. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of work. So we're trying to split it out. We service a lot of different networks, CNN, Bloomberg, CNBC, uh, talk shows like the Tamron Hall Show, uh, uh, network special events, and a lot of studio installs. Instead of one guy having to do it uh, five days a week, we'll take five people who aren't working and they'll each split up days. So people are working, they're getting paid. And, and uh, more importantly, it, it's that feeling of being able to contribute, being able to be a part of something. And it, it, it's gotta, it's gotta be difficult for our colleagues in the rock and roll world because uh, Rock and, rock and roll isn't able to do anything. So how do you contribute? How do you manage to get, you know, not just a salary and, and the, the, uh, the money to survive and support your family, but the support of the group and all of the people working. And beyond that, to the support that comes from the audiences. Uh, it, it, it's just crazy. And one of the things that we've managed to do is continue to work primarily because we never really put all our eggs in one basket. We're known as a, uh, as a broadcast company and, and our bread and butter is television, but it's not just TV shows, it's TV events. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, right now we're prepping the Tokyo Olympics. While we're doing Tokyo, we're also in meetings for Beijing after that. But that's going to bring about 35, 40 people to Tokyo, and then we'll be hiring local people there. It's an event that looks like it's going to happen. I mean, everybody's struggling to make sure it happens. So it's not just a typical TV thing. You know, we've done the last three or four presidential funerals. 
it's another event. Is it a TV event? Well, it's a TV event because people are watching it and we have to light the National Cathedral and make sure it looks great on the air. But these are events that don't rely necessarily on somebody going to a TV studio to earn their bread and butter. Uh, and, and, and that's really what's important in the industry to kind of branch yourself out so that you don't lock yourself into something that shuts down and then you're totally out of luck. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you've, you've talked to uh, one of my good friends, Jimmy Tetlow, who, uh, who uh, does, you know, all of his, all of the little boats that he does and uh, uh, presidential debates and, and events. Nautilus was able to survive because of the ability of the company to diversify. And as I said before, not put all the eggs in one basket. You know, we've done four years ago, presidential debates in the 2016 cycle. There were 27 presidential debates between all the networks and uh, then the commission debates. Of those 27 debates, we lit 17 or 18 of them for different networks and varying sizes. I mean, the very first debate was on Fox News in Cleveland, which was one that I lit. It had 84 million people watching. It was the most watched debate ever. These are live events in arenas that don't have that much to do with television, other than the fact that they're being broadcast on television. <laughs> it's a live event, right. you know? And, you know, you do rock and roll shows where you do an incredible amount of video mag. And even now in these days, with all of the people taking their phones and, and uh, downstreaming, uh, everything is going to be seen by somebody on television. But is it really television? You know, it's just yet another way of bringing uh, product and content into people's homes so that they can share in what's happening. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, what's killing everybody and, and affecting everybody psychologically the most is this... Uh, this lack of sharing. Uh, I got off on that whole long tangent, basically talking about how you're managing to share with all of our fellow colleagues and designers, uh, you know, the, the issues that are out there. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's a really good example of how we have to be creative and shift. I, you know, my normal job is to go and meet with people and now I'm locked in my, my house. How do we meet people? Thanks to technology, we have that ability now. You know, and, and even whether it's GoToMeeting or Teams or Zoom or, or Skype, whatever, whatever that process is, that's also another way that we've managed to survive. I mean, once, once the TV studios ended up uh, not necessarily shutting down because control rooms and studios and broadcasting were still active, but the talent, the celebrities, whether the shows, the Today Show or Good Morning America or talk shows, the, the, they couldn't risk the talent getting sick. So all of a sudden people are broadcasting from their homes. Well, the initial response is have a lighting cameraman go out, stick a little uh, a stand light in front of uh, uh, the laptop and call it a day. And that lasted for eh, three or four weeks. Then all of a sudden in April, we started getting calls to actually create studios in people's homes. And oh, we probably did a hundred between the various uh, entities, whether it's ABC, NBC, uh, Discovery, Verizon. But some homes, uh, for example, on the Ladies of the View, since I designed the lighting for the view, I was able to go into their homes and actually do the home studio. 
Uh, the people know me, they trust me, they make sure that I'm not going to be sick or anything, but it was just me. So I would have to order the gear to be sent to my house. I'd have to unpackage it, prep it, throw it in my car, drive it to two or three hours, wherever they live, set it up and then go. But again, it's an adjustment to the, the, the environment and the ways that we need to work to get content to the people and the celebrities feel like they're safe. Even though that was one way of doing it, there was a lot of places where they didn't allow us in your house, in the houses, or they didn't want to pay the money because let's face it, clients are trying to be penny wise in, in, in these particular times. So we would actually Zoom the setup with the anchor person or the, or the correspondent. And there's nothing crazier than somebody who's an on-camera correspondent and you say, okay, hold your phone around the room and show me what the room looks like. <laughs> and they say something like, oh, I have a very beautiful forest and trees back here behind me. I'll use that as the background. I said, no, 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 no. Don't put a window behind you ever. <laughs> the window goes in front of you. That's where we're going to set up. Now show me what the network sent you. A lot of the smaller companies and streaming companies like Verizon would send a small lighting package to the houses. So they'd take their phone and show me the box. Oh, okay, open the box. Oh, that's the stand. Here's how we put it together. And then I show them how to put it together. Now the next box is the light. You put the light on the stand. I mean, it, the whole thing is, is kind of funny in retrospect, but it, it, it's the way the business had to adapt so that people in their homes could be lit to send broadcast out to the world. And, and you saw it yourself. <laughs> yeah. How many of you these shows? VP of design to Ikea manual, uh, instruction manual for oh, yeah. a short while there. Well, it, it's funny. Some of the people, I, when I was at uh, Whoopi Goldberg's house, you said, Dennis, what are you doing here? So well, I'm going to put the lights <laughs> together and, you know, do the thing. You know? And she said, but you don't do that. I said, you know, we all do what we have to do. And, and that's uh, really what it's all about. But, but you've seen it not only on, on, on the shows like the Today Show or Good Morning America, where they have performances, look at the VMAs. Look at, you know, even the, the Grammy Awards the other night. Some of the awards took place in what they had set up and the performances took place in the, in the, in the performance space they set up and then they kept moving different acts in and out. But some of the performances are done by the performance management company in some studio or theater that they rented. And we've mm -hmm. seen that repeatedly uh, where... An artist wants to get their, their song out there, so they'll set up sometimes a very extravagant setup that's then videotaped and then downstreamed and broadcast. Somebody's got to be doing it. I'm sure there's a lot of rock and rollers out there who are, who are lighting these events. Uh, and some of them, frankly, look damn good. I mean, normally, yeah. we, we do a series of concerts for Good Morning America every summer. I've been doing them for 25 years. Last summer was the first time I didn't do. Uh, there's 20 concerts, one every Friday. It's the last half hour of Good Morning America. And the artists usually broadcast three or four songs on the show. Then they'll do a couple songs after for uh, digital. And then sometimes they'll play just because there's three or 4,000 people there who want to hear more songs. But it, it, it's kind of a fun event. I'll put up a rig of maybe 100, 150 moving lights. It's a rep plot. And then we would, 
basically cue the show based on what that performer needs. But there was also a TV show component coming out of the park because the anchors would come to a park. They do a fashion show in one section of the lawn. They do a cooking segment in another section. Then they cut to Lady Gaga singing a song on the stage. Then they cut back to a fashion, you know, that kind of thing, the way the show progresses. Mm -hmm. Well, they couldn't do that last summer and they're not probably doing it this summer. But they still did the concerts every Friday and the performers and the artist management agencies were doing something, whether it was in a studio or in a, in a, in a sound stage or even a recording studio where somebody went in with their phone. You've seen them when they, re they record uh, the, the, the artist doing their little song. Sometimes it's just somebody singing at home to their laptop. Uh, I was watching uh, a show one day, Cynthia Arrivo, who's like magnificent was singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Chris, the video was awful. The way it was shot was awful. I mean, you, you go eye-lying when you're shooting somebody and they want to look right into the camera. Well, she had her laptop on the table. She's looking down and the, the, the shot is up at her, which is not a flattering angle. The video quality was terrible. Chris, by the time she finished that song, I was in tears. It was just beautiful. The woman's got a remarkable voice. She sold the song. You know, at, at one point I had to close my eyes because I couldn't deal with the bad video quality. <laughs> but it, it's, it's really all about the content. Yeah. And, and this remarkable artist sang a beautiful song that had a big impact. And, you know, it, it, it's really what we do this for to begin with. And that was early on in the pandemic. And then you started seeing other artists uh, and performances happening in people's living rooms and people's homes. And then you get more and more production value. And, and I'm sure that there's a number of lighting designers like myself, especially out of the West Coast, who were brought in to, to do this. Um, and, and that's kind of where it's, where it's going. Uh, it's a roundabout way of, of my answering your question about where the industry is going. I mean, I've set up some very simple home studios and I've set up some very complicated ones. You know, the, the meteorologist for Good Morning America, like any show, they, they do, uh, this is the weather up in Vermont and then they're walking across the, the, the map. This is the weather in California. It's a big map. So mm -hmm. they set up a 12 foot by 12 foot video wall in their basement. And then we had to light. It's essentially a studio. Once it was all done and the qual and a, they put you know some quality cameras in these spaces, her comment was, "Wow, this is great. I'm never going to have to go back to the studio." <laughs> and that's not the only person that has said that to me when I've been on a site. And and if you live two and a half hours from the studio out in the the, the Hamptons or up in the mountains, all of a sudden you're going to get spoiled by that. And uh, it's unfortunate because I think that's kind of where it's going to go. If a good broadband connection can help me avoid LA or New York traffic, I'll take it. You know, right I there, uh, you just hit, you hit the nail on the head. That's been the biggest problem all along the connectivity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even when we, when we started this interview, I couldn't get connectivity to you and it was a holdup. Uh, <laughs> one of the shows I've designed uh, recently was um, people's court which I've done the last couple of seasons. Uh, I know you, you talked with Jeff Calderon, who did the original People's Court many, many decades ago. It's still the same show. I mean, as a matter of fact, they use the same set that went on the air that Stu Billet wanted 30 years ago when it went on the air. 
and it's in a studio we set up in Connecticut. But because of travel restrictions and, and uh, the COVID pandemic protocol, the judge is at her home in Miami. So we set up what? a studio at her home. Yeah, yeah. We said they basically took a photograph of the studio set, made a vinyl backdrop, put that behind her. And in, I mean, she's a judge. They're obviously not hurting for money, so they have a big space to work with. It's a vinyl backdrop. They duplicated the judge's bench, and she sits there at the judge's bench, which we had somebody locally light for me, and talks to two cameras. One is the plaintiff and one is the defendant so that she can have those two points of view. And then in the studio in Connecticut, they feed to the monitors, the plaintiff and defendant. And they and basically they have the bailiff in the studio in Connecticut. He's the only live person because somebody's got to swear them in to make it legal. And I'll tell you that the, originally when it went on, went on the air that way last, I think it was September when we did it. The connectivity problems were crazy because they do 10 cases a day. So you're doing 10 shows. Now you have to have another producer prepping the plaintiff and defendant in their homes for the next show that you're going to do to make sure that they have a connectivity, a high, a high connectivity. Because in the middle of the damn court case, connectivity drops out and everything comes to a grinding halt. And that happens with a lot of pre-taped shows now, but you can't have it happen with something that's legal, obviously, because uh, there's a, 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 a legal decision being made that's going to be handed down, so all the facts have to be covered. So then they up the quality of the cameras, they up the quality of the transmission, the broadband, everything had to be upped. Uh, but, you know, they've been doing quite well. As a matter of fact, next week, I'm going up to the studio in Connecticut. The travel restrictions are lifted. The judge will be coming back. But uh, they want to set up another small room there that'll be uh, a remote interview area because they can't have everything in the studio uh, because of having too many people too close to each other all at the same time. Uh, and that's, you know, even, uh, um, you know, the Tamron Hall talk show which uh, was in its second season this year. Uh, in September, I went in and relit the studio for Tamron to be there alone. Normally, there's a 200-some uh, audience, uh, live audience. They couldn't have the live audience, but they wanted to have, they wanted to be on the air, and they wanted Tamron in her studio. So basically, they limited the amount of uh, personnel in the studio, and everybody's wearing masks, and not only masks doubled, they're wearing the plexi visors, I mean, these people are going into the studio. You swear they're going to Mars. They're, they're covered with so much protective gear. <laughs> and uh, and they, they launched the show that way. And, and it worked pretty well for a couple of weeks until somebody tested positive. Then everything comes to a grinding halt. Man. Then after a uh, quarantine period, they go back in. Then somebody tests positive again. Well, then you got a problem. So now we set up a remote studio so that if there's a problem, Tamron can broadcast from a, an apartment near the studio without having to go two hours to her home. Because one of the big problems that we, we, we run into, a lot of these celebrities and, and people in the public eye, they don't want to have people see their private homes. I mean, you have a very special guitar hanging on the wall behind you. Maybe uh -huh. you don't want people to know about that. Right. And all of a sudden now, the, 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 the television watching public is seeing people's homes 
And you know what happens. People all of a sudden, they'll freeze it. They'll blow things up. They'll look. They'll say, hey, what does that say back there? Next thing you know, your private life is all over Internet. So that they, the, the, the um, process now has been to minimize how much, how much public attention is given to celebrities in their homes. Uh, if you look uh, at a lot of shows that are on now, uh, The View comes to mind. The four ladies on The View have 80-inch monitors behind them in their homes, and the graphic that's in the monitor is the exact background that's been photographed in the studio if they were in the studio. So you look at it, you don't know if they're in the studio or not because it, it's all dummied up to look like they're in the studio. The only reason you can tell is the four images are on the screen at the same time. And sometimes you lose connectivity and one person drops out or they'll be talking over each other because you don't, they don't get to see each other all at the same time. Uh, and and it's, it's a whole new way of looking at things, but I have to think it's going to be the way of the future. Uh, even when people get vaccinated and there's, there's more, there's more allowance for crowds to go back into live uh, television mm -hmm. studios or live theaters or live rock and roll shows. There's going to be a lot more consideration for the safety of the public. And I, yeah. I think there's also going to be those people that don't want to go back. You know, I, I don't know uh, how things are going yeah. up in Stony Point, but they just opened the movie theaters in New York and they're allowed 25% uh, capacity. A lot of people don't want to go because even though they're allowed to go, they're concerned. You know, they don't want to get sick. They, and frankly, a lot of people are very happy sitting on their couch at home watching the movie. Uh, I personally don't understand it, but. I noticed that they've actually upped the rental price of all the videos now online be for that very reason. They're like, hey. Even I mean, even in Texas, where people can go back to whatever they're doing, people just aren't. They're still staying home, and they're like, "No, this is. I got my popcorn. I got my couch. I'm pretty happy staying right here." Yeah, it, it it's truly a shame for two reasons. And number one, you just pointed out they upped the rate. I can't go buy a donut now for the same price I paid two years ago. Everything is is being priced up. And it's the bullshit excuse they're giving. Oh, well, COVID protocols now require so much more money being spent that we need to make a better profit to pay. Oh, my God. And even the clients that we work for. Once, once the rock and roll industry starts, I'm sure you guys are going to get hit with the same thing we've been hit with by clients. Oh, mm -hmm. you're going to have to cut your rate because, well, we have to spend so much more money to make sure that you're safe. Really? And you're going to use that excuse? <laughs> you know, it, it, the, the airlines is the best example of that. When gas prices went up, exactly, baggage fees got uh, implemented. Gas prices went down. Still have baggage fees, don't we? They're, those aren't going anywhere. Yep. Yep. It, it's it's a, yep. a real problematic thing. And, and uh, the people that we work for, they're not going to do give backs, you know, it, it, it's very nice for, uh, that's true. It, it, it's very nice for everybody to say, Oh, it was a terrible time. We all need to get together. We all need to recognize we're all part of the human race and we have to 
work together as a family. You know what? I don't know about the people you work for, but the people that we work for aren't going to get into a circle and sing Kumbaya with me. They uh, only care about their bottom line. And uh, it, it's unfortunate. It's, it's, you know, the old saying, it's, it's not show friendship, it's show business. It is. It absolutely and, is. Uh, it, it, it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, Maybe we can even go a little bit further. You and I are not immune to that. You have many difficult decisions to make. Uh, you know, when that PPP comes in, you have to decide if you're going to do the, the profitable thing or then maybe what's right or wrong thing. I can only imagine that's a very difficult choice as a leader to make. It's extremely difficult. And uh, even when we, when we had the first PPP, it, it was just strange. You know, it was great to be able to pay people but there was no work for the people. It, it seemed like it would have been a better thing if we were able to extend the money or, or, or amortize the loss that we were having on the rental of the office space and everything else. I mean, obviously, as, as I said, we're able to bring people back. We have about 25 designers on, uh, back now that are back on staff, but those people are working in the field. We have on top of that, another 20 people who work in an office, production managers, our systems division, our accounting division, drafts people, and they're all working from home. Meanwhile, we're paying a pretty hefty rental for the office space that we have. We have an entire floor in Midtown Manhattan, doesn't come cheap. And mm -hmm. uh, when, when the PPP finally ran out and we had to furlough people, we had to make other tough decisions too. I mean... Uh, uh, all of our salaries were reduced, you know, uh, we did a sliding scale so that the people on the higher end, like, uh, our senior designers, myself, uh, it might've been a 30% reduction. And then it was a 20% reduction and people on the lower end of the salary scale were only like a 15% reduction or a 10% mm -hmm. reduction. But, uh, you, you know, you try to be fair, but at the same time, Everybody suffers, and there's always those people that say, why me? Why did I have to suffer? I only make $50,000 a year. I shouldn't have to give anything back. You know, I, I could have said the same thing, and, and it affected my judgment to a certain extent because I never had a stop. I never had a, a, a time where I, I didn't slow down. Well, I slowed down. A year, uh, over a year ago, I worked 70, 80 hours a week, and, and especially going into last year, was going to be a banner year for our company it was going to be the tokyo olympics last year it was going to be two presidential election two presidential conventions for the presidential election mm -hmm. those are incredible money uh profitable jobs for us as it was we still did the republican national convention such as it was but nowhere near as profitable as lighting an entire arena plus all of the various networks we service that we go and do studios on site. And, right. you know, four years ago in the election of 2016, we probably had 150 people working in Cleveland for several weeks. Then in Philadelphia for the Democratic Convention, another 100 people working for several weeks, just doing all the coverage for the various news organizations that we service. In addition to uh, if you're doing the convention itself, you know, it's... Uh, and they're big deals. You're going in with four or 500 moving lights and uh, it's a lot of time, a lot of rental. It keeps a lot of people mm -hmm. working. And unfortunately, all of that went away last year. 
And uh, the, the tough decisions then come with, well, once we furlough people, who do you furlough? Because there will be some work, but unfortunately the clients that we service, uh, if they've been, if Chris, if Chris Lowe's has been their designer for 10 years, and sometimes he sends in Joe Blow because Chris is working on another project, they'll accept it. But if Chris is sitting at right. home doing nothing and you'd say, oh, I'm going to send in Joe Blow, they're going to say, well, wait a minute, I'm paying for Chris Lowe's. That's who I want. And, and we got hit with that a lot by our clients. They wanted all the senior designers. They didn't want any mid-range designers. They felt we're paying for the best. We want all of the top people to do our jobs. Hence, I'm out there loading in my own gear on the job. Uh, but, but again, you do whatever you need to to keep the company going. And, and uh, because of, of the amount of work I do and the amount of clients I service, uh, I never really, I mean, I dropped down to maybe 40 hours a week. The, the, the only time I stopped last year was in December when I finally made the decision I had to have hip replacement surgery. <laughs> and after doing all these load-ins myself, I said, this hurts. I'm going to get the surgery. But uh, even in December, while I was recuperating, I was probably on Zoom calls and conference calls three or four hours every day, just doing upcoming projects. Yeah, Zoom calls with morphine, huh? Oh, geez. The best, you know, make the call a little better. <laughs> now, That's what it takes to slow you down, uh, a hip replacement. <laughs> you know, you talk about the tough decisions internally in the company. We just, uh, I can't call it a celebration because it certainly isn't. But this week is the one year anniversary of daily calls that we started after the uh, the pandemic, uh, the lockdown happened, which was a year ago last week. And uh, we've been, in the beginning, we were having twice a day calls for company management among the executive level staff, the, the uh, owner of the company, myself, the VP of our production department, the VP of systems, the VP of finance, our COO, there's a lot of people to keep a company of 50 staffers running. And uh, uh, normally we would have weekly meetings under normal conditions. A year ago at this time, it turned into twice a day just to figure out what was happening. And the news was changing every afternoon. But we finally dropped down to just once a day. And this year, th this week, is the anniversary of our daily calls we've had every day to discuss how on earth is this company going to survive the business? And, and how to handle staffing. And even when like the PP uh, P grant came in, who gets furloughed, who doesn't get furloughed, who gets laid off, who doesn't get laid off? How do we, how do we solve these things? You know, they're, they're very difficult decisions. You know, unfortunately we had to lay some people off and then it becomes a financial de de decision. Uh, for example, mm -hmm. if you have a gaffer who's, uh, who's being paid $150,000 a year, but in the last two years, only generated billable amounts of money at $140,000 a year, then they're a $10,000 a year loss in salary. Right. But let's face it, if somebody's being paid $150,000, they have to generate close to $200,000 just to cover their benefits package, pension and welfare, the cost of the employee itself. Um, and normally, 
I mean, we're just a bunch of designers running around doing shows. We don't know how to run a business. That's why we have lawyers on retainer and accountants and we have a COO. And it really wasn't until the pandemic hit and everything shut down that all of a sudden we had to say, what the hell does it cost to run this company? <laughs> and then it was a deep dive. Well, I'm serious, you know? No, you're uh, absolutely uh, correct. Lighting Design Group just celebrated its 30th anniversary last year. And, and Steve Brill, who's the owner, is a designer out there working himself. And, and much like any designer who's on the road, you know, if he's, if he's going to do the Tokyo Olympics, he's in Tokyo for two months. And then he's made at least 10 trips to Tokyo to do surveys and planning and everything else. So it, it's one of those things that how do you manage a company if you're running around doing shows? It's very difficult. You know, when, no uh, when times any, are anybody that you've talked to. When times are rich, it's really easy to kind of overlook a lot of the smaller details because they don't matter nearly as much. But when times are thin and that bottom line is being scratched, we have to we have to take our designer creative, you know, our extravagant hats off and and kind of really scratch the surface and figure out what we can cut and what 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 can we how far can we cut and without losing that impact. Totally. You know, we, we and when we when we die uh, dove into all of that our IT bill. Now IT not only includes the office computers, but also the phone systems and licensing for AutoCAD and Vectorworks drafting licenses, all of these things that go on. And of the 35 designers that were on staff, more than half of them had licenses to do drafting. All of a sudden we realized, holy shit, the IT bill is $100,000 a year. What the, how did that happen? You know, our phone bill, $100,000 a year. How does that happen? So that's when all of a sudden we started analyzing, where can we cut? Where can we trim? If we don't have the business, why are we having all of this? Let's cut out until we, we know that we can bring stuff back. You know, it's- uh, have, I've talked to know, a lot of people of who share that, that with you. The subscriptions, those are really tough. It's really difficult to buy a new subscription for a year when you know that you're not going to get that money back. Totally. 100%. And, and, and everybody, not, it's not just people in our business. Everybody is looking at ways that they can trim the fat of their daily lives. And, and I'll be honest, going back to people sitting at home watching TV, watching a movie on the television, why not? Instead of going out and spending 25, well, two adults, and if you take your kids, all of a sudden you're spending $50. You know, I love mm -hmm. the theater. I grew up. Uh, the theaters where I come from. But at the same time, when my wife and I decide to take the kids to the theater and the tickets for a Broadway musical are 300 and some bucks a pop, all of a sudden between parking, going out to a dinner, getting theater tickets, it's a $2,000 evening. That is nothing to sneeze about. You yeah. know, the half price tickets and you do everything you can to reduce the cost. But Going out to the theater has to become all of a sudden a big event, you know, somebody's 10th birthday or the 15th. I mean, if there was theater, my wife and I would have gone for our 15th anniversary. You know, you find two or three things a year that make the celebration worth spending the kind of money. Uh, even concerts, you know, concerts aren't cheap either. You go to Madison Square Garden and uh, 
see a big event, if you want great seats, you're going to pay for them. It, uh, you and I both know it that uh, we've been at this long enough that we know all the tricks to make an event worth $350 for those tickets. But now we have to completely change our model to make a Zoom call or something that's on our screens worth somebody taking their time and their attention away from everything else that's going on in their home. How do we get people back to their, their, their monitors for even an hour to view something that's going to generate some impact or some emotion? Well, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with going back to the movie theater situation. When they open up, I will be there at the movie theater. And, and when I have some money that I can throw, I will go to the legitimate theater. I will go and see a concert. There's just Same. something about that group activity and the sharing of whether it's a Broadway musical in 2,000 seats or a concert in a 50,000 seat venue. The live experience is what it's all about. You know, something that, that that's, I think it was Zach Boswell, when you talked with Zach, Mm -hmm. He talked, he told a, a heart-rending story about his dad and how he lost his dad to a, a, an accident and they shared a common uh, uh, love of the Beatles. And he went to a concert that Paul McCartney was playing with his dad and uh, not with his dad, but without his dad after he died. And he relived the experience of having his father with him. And uh, I mean, holy shit, talk about emotional and, and as you guys discussed that, I even thought about live events that I've gone to where I've, I've cried because you're sharing something with a live audience and a live experience that just doesn't happen in your living room. Uh, it, it's just, how, how do you put to words that experience of the human condition when a couple thousand people get together in a room and share a common emotion? It's just something that can't be beat. I, uh, I love my family to death, but watching movies together is not the same as being in a room with 20,000 strangers. You know, there's something about it where <laughs> you know that all these people came from all over the globe to be at this one event at this one time in place. And they, they dropped everything. They flew in, they got a hotel, they got a restaurant, they came in, they paid for parking. You know, the, the, the extents that they went to, to be there for that moment and it's just to have 20,000 strangers in a room is what we, what we got into this for. And not having that for a year is really, really taxing. When I, when I started in television, I came into it out of theater and uh, I was doing soap operas. I cut my teeth doing a lot of soap operas for about 15 years. And normally the LD and directors, TDs, producers, they're all in a control room as this unfolds. During camera blocking at the beginning of the day, you would work the studio floor with the actors. I found that I would like to work the studio floor through the tech and dress rehearsal as well, uh, instead of being in the control room. I was on headset with the director anyway, so they can give me any notes that they would have. But uh, I personally just love the live experience of being in front of actors who are pouring their heart out over, and, you know, sometimes the soap opera scripting is mere pure drivel, but <laughs> when, when it's done by actors who have a, a, an incredible quality of, of talent and ability, 
I mean, sometimes, you know, if, 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 if two parents are, are acting, uh, two actors are playing two parents who are, who are, are crying about their baby who may have just died and they're pouring everything they have, it doesn't always transcend to the two-dimensional media through the camera as well as it does in the live. And I would just love to be in the audience watching the, these actors perform. And, and it, so I would, you know, I'd stay in the studio and watch the live performance and then go in for taping. It, it, there's just something about live performance, whether it's acting, singing, dancing, it, it, it's, it, it's just better live. When you are shooting these uh, these scenes, do you ever find yourself getting sucked into the story? Oh, 100 percent, especially when I first started. I mean, I'd get I'd be watching the story and uh, I have my script and I have my cues written in the script. But as it's unfolding, I'm watching. I become a viewer. I become an audience member, <laughs> not the LD who's supposed to be paying attention to lighting cues. And more often than not, I'd have producers say, Dennis, what the hell are you doing? Are you sleeping over there? And Because I missed a cue or I missed something. Yep. And, and I started out very yep. young. I was only 25 when I started in soap operas. So uh, it, it was a difficult transition. So what I found I had to do was turn off the audio. And I'd have no audio in my headset. I'd just be watching and I'd have the director in one ear and the producer in my other ear. Uh Otherwise, I, I get totally sucked into it. And, and even during live theater pieces, because I, I, I did a lot of live theater and I still do dance. I mean, I have a dance show I'm doing uh, next to, about a month and a half from now in Pennsylvania with the Northeast Pennsylvania Ballet, uh, who I've designed shows for probably 20 years, 25 years so far. Every couple of years, I'll do a couple shows for them. Unfortunately, because of COVID protocol, the ballet that they're doing is La Safide, which uh, normally is a three-act ballet. Two acts take place uh, by a lake with a forest behind. So in the theater, you'd have a backdrop of a lake and a forest. So I talked to the artistic director about it, and I said, hey, let's go survey some state parks in Pennsylvania near where the, the ballet school is and see what we can come up with. This is only like two or three weeks ago. So we found a perfect lake that has a raked lawn going up to the, to the, to, from the lake. So it's a natural amphitheater. So we're gonna build a 60 foot by 50 foot stage right on the beach, the Northeast Pennsylvania Philharmonic. We're gonna put a tent next to it so they can play. And the backdrop is this beautiful lake with a forest right behind them. And, and it, it'll be wonderful because it's a natural setting. And I positioned it because with COVID protocols and everything else, now there's a whole boatload of money that, that and ballet companies just don't have a lot of money to play with. So I said, you know, the number one expense is renting lights. Let's just can the lights entirely. Let's find a place where well, the sun is basically on the perfect angle of the balcony rail at about 29, 30 degrees and let the sun be the key and be the front light for the, for the ballet and do the ballet at magic time. Let's schedule it at 5.30, 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock, somewhere in there. And we found the perfect position at the perfect lake where the sun will be about downstage left and then work its way to downstage right over the two hours of the ballet. And as the sun is setting, the, the uh, ballet ends at sunset. I mean, it's gonna be wonderful, but nothing like what we would be doing in a theater. But you know, you adapt and, and uh, it, it'll be fun. That is very creative. That is even, uh, even last year 
when the pandemic hit, the, the ballet company celebrated their 60th anniversary where they've been doing the Nutcracker every year free for the people in Northeastern Pennsylvania. They didn't want to all of a sudden stop because it, it's, it's been a big deal and it's a very large and, and uh, uh, a very professional ballet company. So they came up with the idea like everybody else has been doing with drive-in theaters. So we went to the theater, we shot the show in the theater the way it would be without any audience or anything, videotaped that, and then they played it in uh, the drive-in movie theater over the course of five nights. And they sold out, well, they sold out, it was free. I mean, they, they packed the drive-in theater every night. And then the Fox affiliate in Pennsylvania uh, loved it so much, they asked if they could broadcast it. So they broadcast it for several nights over Christmas week. And it was like, you know, a wonderful thing to the point that they're going to do it now. And they just signed a contract for five years to do the same thing every year, whether it's in the theater or not. Uh, but but that's again, cool. that's another way of reimagining what it is we do and, and how we do it. Even the ballet. I mean, I had designed the ballet several years ago. I usually go and I focus it and cue it and I make sure it still looks good. But they were taping it the week of elections and election week in the in the news industry is like the Grammy Awards. So I was buried in studios and couldn't go to Pennsylvania to cue the show. So I had my programmer zooming me the show as it was happening in the theater in Pennsylvania while I'm in a control room in New York saying, OK, bring that level up a little more. Now take that down. Add some more blue. I mean, wow, it's, it's crazy what we have to do. And uh, I mean, we don't have to do it, but it's what we do. Because it's what we do. You know? I'd say we, we, I'd say it's what we have to do. These are this you know, is what we you know we've thirty five years into this. We're not going to stop now. I, I think a lot of people though, Chris, are really uh, they're burying their head in the sand, and uh, that's the one thing that you cannot do. Uh, I agree. It, it, it's, I mean, we do what we do because we love it, and. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously, I've been doing this a long time. Uh, I, I get uh, paid a pretty decent salary. But if the truth be told, I'd be happy working in some shithole off-off-Broadway theater downtown doing some crappy show for a live audience for no money. Because that's what I started with. That's how I started. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I even after I started, I was on staff at ABC for almost 20 years. And that's where I was doing soap operas and then cut my teeth in special events and variety shows. But I would always go and uh, do master classes at universities, or I'd go do a show at a university. And people would say to me, why do you do all this two-bit third-rate school stuff? It doesn't pay you any money. And, and I'd always say, if I have to explain it to you, you're not going to understand no, nope. and, and nope. the reality is, you know, so many of my friends were, you know, seeing a psychiatrist or something, going to do a, a, a school musical at Penn State University was such a recharge of my batteries that uh, it's it, it just and also it's the live event. Plus, and this is something that, you know, you've talked about with other people you've chatted with. If I go and do a show at a university or a small theater, uh, 
I can play. I can do fun stuff. I can gamble. Yeah. I can challenge myself. I can experiment. Uh, it's not something I can do if I'm doing a show for 80 million people because yep. you make one mistake with a cue, you're sunk. But, yep. you know, in a, in a ballet in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, if I make a mistake, somebody's probably going to say, holy shit, that was very innovative, that thing that you tried. Uh, to which you can say, it really was. <laughs> but mm-hmm. that's how we learn. You know, we try things, we play, we experiment. Uh, you know, it's, it's the same thing, whether it's uh, doing a new lighting technique or trying a new lighting fixture. Uh, you don't know until you yeah. try it. The less I get paid, the more I'm willing to experiment. That's where, that's where my ratios exist there. I, I just hope that during this period, and, and I've advised many of our, uh, our designers and even a lot of younger people out of school, I, I probably interviewed a half dozen people who are graduating with their lighting design MFAs and BFAs, and, and we just don't have any work now. But every year, I always hire somebody right out of school and put them on staff as an assistant designer. And I've told them, don't slow down, you know, advance your AutoCAD skills, advance your skills and your knowledge of equipment. To, you, you, you need to refine every talent and ability you have because the stronger your skill set is, the more you're going to be somebody that we're going to look to hire. So true. And, and you know, skill sets aside, I mean, it, it goes beyond that. It's, you know, attitude, work ethic. There's a whole litany of things that are, are just as important, if not more so. And and those that have that will, will be successful. I mean, you, you've interviewed people that ha- used to work for LDG, uh, you know, like People that come to mind are Mike Baldessari, uh, uh, Mike Appel, Sammy Ross, uh, Mitch Fenton, who you who you interviewed, who's doing great in Australia, was my draftsman for probably a year and a half before he left the company to do what he needed to do, which is be a lighting designer. And and that's what people need to do. If they can't work for a company, they still need to advance their skills. Uh I think it was Mike Appel, as a matter of fact, who said that in between things, he'd go to the vendors and just practice and do songs and do cueing to songs so he could learn and grow on how to do things better, faster, quicker, more imaginative, mm-hmm. just like any programmer would. Yep. Yep. Those are, those are some great tools of the, of the masters right there. Dennis, we are almost out of time. And one of the things that- Can we be out of time? We didn't talk about It's crazy. It's crazy. We have talked oh about so God. much professional stuff here. I kind of want to see if you'll go uh, and get a little bit more personal with me. From a lot of the people that I've talked to, you are a bit of a night owl or uh, you, you don't require much sleep. And you, you mentioned it before the pre-pandemic, you were working 70, 80 hours. I know a lot of people have talked to, they're getting emails from you at four in the morning uh, about uh, things that uh, need immediate responses. Uh, how has the pandemic affected your personal workflow and your, your daily life schedule. And what are you going to, what are you going to take away from it? And what are you going to leave behind? You know, and, and it's funny you mentioned that because a lot of the close gaffers uh, that I've worked with and designers I worked with always used to joke that uh, how does Dennis survive? Most people, uh, there's a, a, a good friend of mine as uh, a gaffer, John Reynolds, who worked with out of Charleston, used to call me the Highlander. Because like the Highlander, I never <laughs> seem to go to sleep. Other people say, you got to be a vampire or something. How do you manage to go without getting any sleep? 
but it, it's just something that as a kid, I mean, I, I grew up in a bar and uh, I worked for my dad. And then at night, I, I was a musician. That's how I started. During the day, I'd either be going to school or working. And then at night, I'd be playing in a gig somewhere. I played all keyboards I played. Then, you know, get up the following morning with only three or four hours sleep. And, and that's just kind of the way it worked out. And then when I started in television, I was doing soap operas. I do Monday, Wednesday, Friday because you can't do five days in a row. You go in at midnight, you light 10 sets at the most, anywhere from five to 10 sets. Then they come in at nine to do camera blocking. Then they come back for a tech rehearsal after lunch at one. And then you just rehearse tape, rehearse tape, rehearse tape until the damn show is done. But it has to be done in that one day. Uh, mm -hmm. I think I had set a record at uh, ABC once. I went in at midnight and then I left at 5 a.m the following day, 30 hours later. Impressive. Uh, and, 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 you know, you get, get used to that, 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 that regimen. You just stick with it. And, and as I said, people would say, oh, Dennis will sleep when he dies. And uh, it, it, it's kind of uh, ironic and sad that uh, the pandemic uh, in, in which so many people died, I managed, I'm knocking on wood everywhere to, uh, uh, not get sick because I put myself in a lot of dangerous situations. I've worked in environments in the last year where people have died and, and I've had friends die and, and people have been sick. Now, in the height of it in August and uh, uh, when I was doing the uh, conventions and elections, I was getting tested every day. One day I got tested twice. So I was doing a town hall presidential meeting with uh, uh, then President Trump uh, for ABC. And then a couple of weeks later, I did one with uh, Biden, another town hall. And they had audience people there. They had 20 people at the Constitution Center in Philadelphia. This is a nice amphitheater, but we had to be tested every day. And then on the day of the shoot, twice that day, I still get tested twice a week. I mean, you could shove a number two lead pencil up my nose. I won't <laughs> feel it anymore with all the swabbing they've done to me. And fortunately, I'm very cautious. I mean, I, I mask up. I stay away from people. And I've never been a touchy-feely, kissy-kissy kind of guy. So uh, I've managed to survive without getting sick. But I'll tell you, once the pandemic hit, as a guy who's been through several relationships over my lifetime and, and have three children, I was able to have family time that I never allowed myself the pleasure of having up until March of last year. I mean, I might, I might've gone out of the house one day a week, twice a week, a lot of stuff would be on zoom calls, but by and large, I was only really working uh, maybe 15, 20 hours a week through the first couple of weeks until things started gearing up on locations and home shoots. And that afforded me the opportunity of, really spending time with my family that I, I never allowed myself. It, it's, you know, go, going back to the, the interview you did with Zach Boswell, you talked about uh, uh, the military guy who, or one of the guys on your crew, who you had to like shove him uh, on a plane to get him to go home for the birth of his, of his child. Yeah. I missed the birth of my first child because I was doing a show. I was in a studio. And, and my then wife called me and said, hey, I think my water just broke. And, and my reaction was, really? Well, when's this going to happen? Because I'm in the middle of a show. Well, that is the stupidest, dumbest reaction that you should have. And one of the biggest regrets of my life was actually missing the birth of my first child. 
didn't miss the second two, that's for damn sure, because it's something you always remember. And the pandemic, the one good thing out of the pandemic for a lot of people, I think, was a wake-up call to, to recognize the value of your family and just how important that is. And even during, during uh, the pandemic, my father-in-law died of COVID. My wife's from Albania. And uh, with the travel restrictions and everything, we weren't able to go. We, we, th there was no funeral. There was no time to grieve. None of that in the country. And, and you've heard that story dozens of times. Uh, That's tough. And this, this pandemic has forced people to recognize truly what's more important, you know? You know, that old story, the show must go on. That was only made up by a producer that sold the house out and wasn't about to give back the money. In reality, once uh, Broadway shut down, all that money had to be given back. And which was more important, people dying or people living? And, and I think that's, that's the, one, the, the one big takeaway that I've had is... is the priorities in my life switched around a lot more, even though I knew what I wanted to do. And even though in the past I've said, oh, I got to spend more time with my family or I'm not going to take that job so I can, you know, take a two week vacation. And a two week vacation for me, even if I was in the mountains of Greece, I'd be on the, the, the laptop, I'd be drafting, I'd be doing all this bullshit that really didn't matter in the scheme of things, considering I was with my family and that was the time I needed to spend. So when this universal situation happened and all of a sudden we're united by a common enemy who we can't fight, meaning COVID-19, we all recognize together, even the producers who had sold the show out, that the show doesn't necessarily need to go on. And even when I, I you know, doing a lot of the home studios and stuff where I've actually gotten more personally involved with a lot of the talent and the artists that I just deal with as the guy in the front of house at the lighting console, it, it, it everybody has awakened to that, to that fact. And, uh, um, I, I hope that it continues, but I, I don't think it will because too many people are going to want to all of a sudden get back to a normal that they'll never get back to. And that normal that used to be was not really a family friendly for lack of a better way of describing it. Uh, it the people we work for, the clients, the managers, the money changers, um, they make us work hard for the money that we earn. And it's, it's, yeah. not, it's not a, a, a person who's doing it. It's a company. It's a corporation. It's a board of directors. It's, it's, a crazy entity that we can't talk to, that we can't touch. That it's uh, it's an Excel sheet. Yeah, yeah, it really is, and and it's unfortunate. Uh, you know, uh, in high school I played basketball, and the coach used to say all the time, "When the going gets tough, the tough get going," and, and, and that's been kind of a mantra that I've used with a lot of our staffers over the last uh, uh, year because. People would say to me, when are you going to slow down? When are you going to stop? And, and I jokingly say, well, you know what? Somebody's got to pay the bills. And right now, there's only a few of us that are out there working, and we need to pay the bills. And especially once uh, the PPP ran out, 
there are a lot of bills. I mean, even while we had people on furlough, we were covering their pension and welfare and their insurance. That money had to come from somewhere, the rent, our own salaries. It's uh, So when the phone rang for a job, we had to take it. Fortunately, there weren't as many jobs as there should be. But at the same time, there were enough jobs to keep me busy and still have family time. But a lot of the time I would take some of our other staffers and say, okay, you're going to go and do this job or you're going to go and do this job. And it, it's, it's allowed us not only the ability to continue working, but also, I mean, I'm, I'm big on mentoring people and training people. And uh, over the years, there's, uh, I don't know, dozens and dozens of lighting designers out there working who I've trained and uh, uh, have become very successful. Uh, during this pandemic time, it's afforded me the opportunity, even though most of our clients want to have the high-priced dentist size uh, at their beck and call, just like the management people that we work for that toss around that phrase, out of an abundance of caution, we're not going to do this. I can use the same phrase against them and say, out of an abundance of caution, I think perhaps I shouldn't go on this. And you're going to have to take Chris who's going to go in my stead. <laughs> and Chris is just as good as me, if not better. And he's going to take care of you and blah, 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 blah. Uh, I mean, you know, look at you. Look at you. You have learned quite a quite an important lesson there that you'd be able to use those terms. Well done. It, it, as we close this off, I'm going to, uh, I won this big award at the university I went to several years ago. And I didn't quite understand it because I'm just a guy that turns lights on and off. I'm not, uh, you know, and there were, the, the university gave the award to the arts, which is the one I got, to medical sciences, to human sciences, all the, and there were, there were people, of the five people who won the awards, there was somebody who like invented the cure for cancer and somebody who figured out how to land a man on the moon. I mean, these were like important people. You know, the bottom line is what we do certainly is valuable, but it's not, it's not saving babies. You know, it's, it's not, you no. know, life-threatening kind of thing. So anyway, I, I got this award and I was the last person to go up and speak and uh, I, I said, all I can figure here is that there must have been an extra award. Nobody knew who to give it to because I shouldn't be getting an award on the same stage with these people who have done so many meaningful things and are saving lives. I said, I liken it to when I graduated and was very successful. And after I won my first Emmy Award, a teacher mentor of mine from college said, well, doctor size. And he always called me that because I was in pre-med for three years until I finally said, I would never go to a doctor that had the attitude I had. I hated it. <laughs> I couldn't wait to go and work on the stage. And they all knew it. But I wasn't about to quit because I was just brought up in an environment in, in the 60s that you didn't quit. You just persevered. Uh, but when I finally made the decision and I switched out of pre-med into theater, which is like, you know, crazy. But uh, <laughs> this priest says, used to call me doctor, a Jesuit, uh, and uh, he said, Dr. Size, you finally mastered the fine art of Jesuit bullshit. <laughs> and uh, I tossed that out to you because although I appreciate uh, the, 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 the uh, compliment that I can certainly politically handle myself with these people, 
it truly is just mastering the fine art of Jesuit bullshit. Uh, <laughs> even when I, I hire people and uh, I've done several podcasts recently and, and somebody had asked me, what do you look for in the skill sets of the designers that you hire? And I said, you know, anybody coming out of a good graduate program is going to know the difference between a Fresnel and a Lico, and they're going to know design, they're going to know the function qualities of light, they're going to know all this stuff. What I need is somebody that knows how to talk to people. Because if I send them mm -hmm. into an environment with a client, and they say the wrong thing, we're all sunk. It's all about the politics, how you sell yourself, the, the, the way you handle yourself in the client's eyes is what keeps the client happy. You know, I, yep. I go to work all the time. I could be, I could be dying. Even now I, I've gone back to work with my hip replacement. People say, I can't believe you're here and you're so happy. Well, I might not have been happy. I work for clients I hate, but you know what? They'll never know that. They'll never and know. And that's one of the things that I, I try and train our younger designers to be, be enthusiastic. Let the client think that they're the be all and the end all. My dad used to tell me when I was in high school, when you take a girl to the dance, dance with the girl you took. No yep. one else. You know, that's great couple, advice. Two years ago, I redid all of the lighting for Good Morning America. About six months after that, I redid all of the lighting for the Today Show. Of course, they knew I was on Good Morning America. And sometimes people would say, how can you work for competition like that? It's no different than doing the Democratic National Convention and then going to the Republican National Convention. Whoever I'm with at that moment, that's who I'm going to dance with. And it's very important for them to believe that as far as I'm concerned, they're the best and the be all and the end all. Of course, I got to convince myself that, but I'm just happy to be working. I'm enthusiastic about what I do. I love what I do. So I'm happy to be anywhere. You call me to do your bathroom. I'll be happy to do your bathroom lighting. I'll light bathrooms. I'll do it. If it, uh, if it makes you feel better, I'll light bathrooms. I will make that bathroom the best experience you've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for all your unique uh, words of wisdom and philosophies here. This is really good, Dennis. I really appreciate you taking the time to share all this with us. Man, I it's feel like we fun. could go for another I, I, hour I, easy. There's, there's so much more that we can talk about. And, and it's funny because, uh, as I said, I've done a few podcasts, but everybody always sends a list of questions or topics and uh, you didn't do that, which is great. We just all kind of free formed it. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, spontaneous from uh, what comes from inside. And that's, that's really, that's really the important part. Absolutely. One of the things that's great, I don't know if you've given it any thought. And I, and I think you probably now have the, uh, the audience listeners that would love it is, is to get, you know, four or five people together and do like a group um, sort of uh, uh, chat session. Uh, I, I don't know. It, it certainly couldn't be an hour, <laughs> but, but at the same time, there's nobody more opinionated than lighting designers. In my opinion, I mean, man, you, you ask uh, 10 designers an opinion on, on a, on a, on a lighting cue, you're going to get 12 opinions. Yeah. Right on. Well, thank you so much for your time. I will definitely put that in the books and see what I can do to make that happen. Take care. Be well, be safe, have fun up there in Ontario. 